or who he would choose, it was a choice that he made, that one would live to fulfill God's purposes and one would live not to fulfill his purposes. And the key verse, I think, in helping us understand how God comes to this choice is found back in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Jump back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, and the, the order is very important. Notice what Paul writes here. He says, For those whom he foreknew, God, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Notice the order. Those he foreknew, he then predestined. Now, let me help clarify what those big words mean. Uh, To foreknow is to know beforehand. So before they ever knew, before they did anything, before they, had, before they were even born, he already knew uh, about them. He knew the choices that they were going to make. He knew everything about them. And based on that foreknowledge, he predestined them. Now, to predestine means to destine beforehand <laughs> or to determine an outcome before it happens or to predecide a destiny for that person. Now, these two concepts of foreknowledge and predestination must be glued together so tightly that you really can't separate the two. We need both of them together, and we need to understand them, that they are so connected that we cannot separate them. God in his perfect understanding, knows for sure what we, you and I, will freely choose to do. He knows for sure. And in perfect alignment with his understanding of what we will freely choose, he presets our destiny. Wait a minute. Yes, what I said is true. He knows for sure what we're going to freely choose to do, and therefore he presets our destiny. He predestines us. Uh, Ken Wilson is a professor at a seminary that I'm actually taking some classes at. Keep myself sharp. Keep myself thinking. I love it. Um, And uh, Ken Wilson, I believe, has the reputation at Grace School of Theology as being the smartest person on campus. I'm serious. Like, there's a professor that I always thought was the smartest guy I ever met until I met Ken. Ken, uh, just to give you an understanding of his education, um, he first is a medical doctor. Uh, He is an orthopedic surgeon. He actually does surgery on hands. He's a hand specialist. And um, he uh, is, I guess, pretty well known throughout the nation for his surgeries on hands. And, uh, And yet, you know, a medical doctor, that was great for the challenge of the brain, but He's so smart, he went on and earned a second doctorate in the philosophy of theology at Oxford University in Cambridge, England. Uh, so Ken, Ken is, uh, is brilliant. He's, he's incredibly intelligent, and he writes his doctoral dissertation for Oxford on Augustine and how Augustine um, um, used to be uh, a guy who believed in freedom of choice, but actually moved to not believe that anymore. And uh, anyway, in his dissertation, he wrote these words. Let me read them to you. You can read them with me. He writes, God's control over the future is determined. This is now the truth. This isn't Augustine's wrong thinking. This is right thinking. 
God's control over the future is determined by a foreknowledge of human choices. Divine election, that's God's choice, is in part a function of his foreknowledge. The manner in which God will determine and govern a human life is fixed by an awareness of the ways in which freedom will be exercised. Now, when I read that to my wife, Jill, last night, without being able to read it with me, she's like, I don't know, that sounds a little like I, I can't really track with you. So I hope you can kind of track with this quote. If you read it as well as listen to me say it, we'll leave it up there for a few minutes to let it kind of sink in a little bit. And while it's sinking in, let me try to simplify the point. Here's the point. God elected to fulfill his eternal plan through Jacob. He elected to fulfill his eternal plan through Jacob and not Esau because he looked down the corridors of time and saw the free choices they would make. Got it? Good. Which gets at the heart of why he said what he said in verse 13. Let me read it to you again. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, to understand what he's saying here, it's good to understand the word hated as rejected. Rejected is a good way to interpret what he's saying here. Esau was rejected from being a part of God's eternal salvation plan because God saw Esau would reject him. He, that God saw that Esau would turn his back on God and not commit himself to living for God, and therefore God predestined Esau to not be a part of his eternal plan for bringing salvation to the world. And the flip side, if, if rejection is how to understand hated, then um, accepted and made Jacob as a part, the one who would be used by him to carry out his salvation plan in the world. Now, God is still, to this day, carrying out his salvation plan in the world. It's part of his predestination for what's happening in the world today. And he's doing it through the church. He's doing it through you and through me. He has predestined us to be a part of his eternal salvation plan based on his foreknowledge of our free choices. How about that, huh? Got it? No? Okay, well... Keep working on it. Here we go. Like Jacob and Esau, you and I have a freedom. We have the freedom to make our choices. Do we want to be a part of God's plan? Do we want to be ambassadors for Christ in our world today where we're calling on people to be reconciled to God, to come into a harmonious relationship with God, that, that he'll use us to do that? That's what 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 tells us is our calling. Do we want to be a part of that? See, God wants to use us for his eternal purposes. And it's not based on our works. It's not based on our abilities, you know, whether we do good things or bad things. Um, we don't earn being a part of his eternal purpose. But we do have the freedom of choice if we want to join him in doing what he's, you know, being a part of what he's doing in our world. We have a choice to make, do we want to be a part of that or not? And here's the interesting thing. The choice that we're going to make on that, we want to be a part of 
you know, working for the Lord and doing what the Lord wants for our lives? You want to be a part of that? The choice that you and I make, God already knows we're going to make it. (laughs) And based on that choice that he knows for sure we're going to make, he has already predestined us to either be a part of it or not be a part of it. Let me read this again once. Oh, the depths, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You tracking with me? Well, what do you say we go even deeper? Let's, let's do a deep dive now as we finish up. Third is this. God saves people not because of our will, but because of his mercy. God saves people not because we want it or we will it ourselves. He saves us because of his mercy. Back in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or wants it or the man who runs or that can be translated exerts himself but on God who has mercy. My grandpa on my mom's side of the family, Grandpa Weir, when he was alive and when my mom was little, he owned a small engine repair shop and he would sell lawnmowers and he would sell chainsaws and things like this and he would repair engines when you know people had troubles and a guy once came into the store when when my mom was little and she was there in the store with her dad and uh, he asked if he could have a chainsaw uh, that he would put a little bit of money down but then um, you know he would pay off the chainsaw as he cut wood and then sold wood and and my, my grandpa could tell that, you know, he looked like he was uh, kind of hurting a little bit financially. And so my grandpa agreed. And so they wrote out this little contract, just a handwritten note, that this guy would, uh, you know, put just a little bit of money down. And then when he made enough money off the wood he sold, he would pay off the chainsaw. And he wrote his address and his phone number on the sheet of paper and signed it and everything. And, and he left with this really nice chainsaw with very, very little down. And... Uh, Weeks went by, and uh, my grandpa hadn't heard anything from the guy and um, decided he'd write him a letter, you know, reminding him he still has a bill to pay, still has to pay this off, and didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back. Well, now it's into the winter, and we're getting close to Christmas even, and he still hasn't heard from the guy. He's called, and there's, you know, no answer. And finally, he decides he's going to get in his pickup truck, and he's going to go to the guy's house. He had the address. He's going to go to the guy's house. And just talk it out with him, you know, why isn't he paying off his bills? And my mom, as a girl, little girl, decided he wanted to ride along with her dad. So she hops up in the pickup with him, and they drive to this address. Well, the address is like a dirt road, and you're kind of out in the woods a little bit. And before you know it, they pull up to this trailer that's kind of nestled in the woods a little bit. And sure enough, there's some stacks of wood that are cut with a little sign for sale on them. But it's kind of off the beaten path. And as my grandpa gets out of the truck, he sees that um, he sees that there's lights on in the trailer, and uh, so he goes up and he he knocks on the door, and there's no answer. And he knocks again, and there's no answer. And 
he comes back to the truck and he assesses the situation. And of course, it's getting near Christmas. And he decides something in the moment. He writes, gets out a piece of paper and he writes a note. And he said, For the chainsaw, paid in full, Merry Christmas. My mom saw him write that note. And uh, he folds it up and he goes up to the door and he wedges the note in the door and he gets back in the truck and they drive away. That made a big impact on my mom. And, you know, the guy maybe wanted to pay off the chainsaw, but he just didn't have the resources. It's kind of beside the point. The point is, is that my grandpa saw this guy's inability and he felt mercy toward him and he decided to show him some compassion. Now, you and I, we have an, an inability to pay for our own salvation. <laughs> we may want to. We may have a will to do it. Um, we may even on our own energy, try to exert ourselves, you know, run to do it. But it is impossible for us to do it. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he said a number of things as he's hanging there on the cross. And one of the last things recorded of Jesus is he said, it is finished. Remember that when he was hanging on the cross, it is finished? Actually, in the original language of Greek, it's just one Greek word. The Greek word is tetelestai. And tetelestai uh, can be translated paid in full. That Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid for our debt that we have an inability to pay for ourselves. And here's why the Lord rescues us. Again, in verse 15, he says of Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what's implied here and what we can hear when we read that is, well, wait, okay, that means that God will not show mercy to some, and he will not show compassion to some. And the Apostle Paul elaborates on this down in verse 17. Notice what he says in verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, just to get us up to speed on the story of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites, back in the Old Testament, you can read about it yourself, Exodus 3 through Exodus 14, but the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And then God is calling them out of their slavery, and he wants to make them a nation. And so Moses is picked to go and talk to Pharaoh about, you know, his Israelites, let, let my people go kind of a thing. And Pharaoh wants nothing to have with it. He, he doesn't want it. His heart is hardened, and uh, he doesn't want to let them go. So God brings ten different plagues till finally Pharaoh lets the people go, right? And the Israelites come out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and they're heading out to start their own nation. And as they're going, Pharaoh's heart is hardened again, and he sends his army to go get them and bring them back and get them back into slavery. So Moses is there, and they're at the Red Sea, not sure what to do. And then, you know, God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go through the Red Sea. 
The Egyptian army is chasing after them. They are in the dry land in the center of the Red Sea. As the Israelites are out, God crashes the water over the Egyptian army, and they all drown. Quite a fascinating uh, account uh, in history. And, uh, and the reality is all of this happened because, first of all, Pharaoh hardened his heart against what God wanted for the Israelites. And then secondly, God actually added to that hardened heart of Pharaoh and made his heart even harder. And here's why that all went down. Once again, verse 17, for two reasons. First of all, the, the Pharaoh was chosen, and he had this hard heart, first of all, to demonstrate my power in you is what God has written here. The idea that God's power would be seen in that moment, and it was through the plagues and then, of course, the Red Sea. His power was, was amazing. But then here's the second reason why Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, in that generation, when the Israelites left Egypt and they're out in the wilderness, they're out there for 40 years. Nobody even knows about God, really, in the world. I mean, God's name was not proclaimed throughout the whole world right in that generation. Matter of fact, in that generation, they all died in the wilderness. It took generation after generation after generation until finally God's name in our generation, is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. As a matter of fact, right here in Manitowoc, we're not the only church proclaiming the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of God. There's other churches doing it here. There's other churches doing it in Central America and in South America. You can go over to Russia and into China, into India, into Ethiopia, all around Africa. You go all around the world. Jesus, the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. God's name is being proclaimed. And all of that can be stemmed all the way back to that moment when God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It's because of that moment that God's history, salvation history, was unfolding all the way until our current day. My wife, Jill, is a first-generation Christian in her family line Back, going back in from her uh, mom's side of the family. Uh, when she was a little girl, Oma and Opa, uh, German names for grandma and grandpa, but um, actually that was her great-grandma and great-grandpa that she knew when she was a little girl. Um, they wanted nothing to do with the Lord. They wanted nothing to do with, with spirituality. They were very hardened against anything about Jesus. And uh, therefore, Jill's grandma um, also wanted nothing to do really with the Lord. And Jill's mom really didn't want much to do with the Lord. Um, but then Jill, at the age of 15, heard the gospel. She was at a youth group that she was invited to, and she put her faith in Jesus. <laughs> and through Jill, the Spirit of God worked to bring the gospel to her two other sisters, and they're saved. Jill's mom and her dad are now saved. Jill's grandma, late in life, heard the gospel and put her faith in Jesus as her Savior. Even Jill's mom's sister, her Aunt Rita, the only sibling of Jill's mom, put her faith in Jesus as well. Now what happened was God looked down through the corridor of time, knowing that Oma and Opa, the great-grandma and great-grandpa, would have a hard heart against him and would actually die in their sins, that they, they would never turn to Jesus for salvation, even though they heard the gospel. But God not only looked down that corridor of time, but then looked beyond that 
to a biological descendant of Oma and Opa, and that would be Jill herself. That Jill came about physically because of that lineage. And he knew that Jill would put her faith in Christ and that these other people around Jill would put their faith in Christ because of his witness through her. His name would be proclaimed through her. So God knows that the relatives in our ancestry, you go back in our lineage, every one of us have people in our heritage who have had a hardened heart toward God. But God, in his sovereign foreknowledge, uh, destined them for that because they, he knows that there's going to be someone down the road, you and me, who will put our faith in him and his name will continue to be proclaimed throughout the earth. He, he will shower his mercy and his compassion on us and he will be glorified in our lives. God looks down the corridors of history and he knows our ancestors' free choices. And he knows that those ancestors Some of them have chosen to reject him. And yet, he also looks even further down, and he sees that you and I would come along, and in our freedom, we have chosen to accept him. And his name would be proclaimed then through us. And this is all a part of God's predetermined or predestined purpose, eternal purpose, and his eternal plan. Read it with me again. Out loud, Romans 11, 33. Here we go. Read it out loud with me. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. When we think about those people who don't know Christ, those people who we love, and we want them to know how much Jesus loves them, and we want them to love him back, and, and we want them to be a part of his eternal purposes. We know that we cannot force them against their will to turn to Christ. And for those we love, and maybe we've been praying for them for years, that can really weigh heavy on our hearts. It can pain our hearts to see them living the way they do, rejecting God turning a cold shoulder toward him. Even God doesn't force them against their own free will. He knows for sure what they're going to freely choose to do. And so he has set their destiny. Again, his foreknowledge must be stuck to his predestination. See, God is too compassionate to force people to love him. Uh, he is, that, that to love, that when we love someone, we can never force them to love us back either. It's impossible. For God to, or for love to be real, it must be a free choice that we make. So, keep our hearts of compassion for those we love. Keep loving them. Don't give up on people. Pray for them. And keep God where he belongs. On the throne. In control. He's still holding on to that bike seat as we try to carry out what he calls us to do, to bring the the gospel to the lost world, to tell them about a relationship with Jesus that can start today 
and last forever. To tell them about how much Jesus loves them. To help people understand God's plan for their lives. Like the Apostle Paul, when we turn to the Lord, we can turn our discouragement into encouragement. Because God is still God. He's the one doing the rescuing. He's the one carrying out his plan. God's got this. Let's pray. Lord, as we read that verse over and over in Romans 11.33, oh, the riches, both of the wisdom and the judgments that you have, the depth of the knowledge of knowing you, the the thought of knowing you and knowing your thoughts after you, it's far beyond what we can even imagine. And yet, you allow us to wrestle and, and to think how things that don't seem to be able to be put together in our minds are easily put together in yours. May your word, the Bible, be our ultimate authority. May it be used even in this moment to teach us and to correct us to rebuke us if need be so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord Jesus, may you receive all the glory in this place. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.